All right, welcome to the Village Church once again. Uh, my name is Larry, and um, I'm an intern here at the church. Um, it's really exciting to see everybody here. It's Christmas season, so we whipped out our Christmas songs, or one of them at least. And I love this time of the year. It's um, always a good, um, you know, it's, it's a good time to reflect on what God has given us. Um, and to think on all his blessings, and namely, the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Emmanuel is all about, uh, God with us, that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus, as a baby to live with us. God wasn't just a spectator watching us from afar, um, but he actually came into our world, and he lived and suffered and died for us. So, um, And another reason why I love Christmas is because this Saturday we're having the Christmas market. This is something that we've been doing for a while. This is our third year in a row that we've been doing it. And if you don't know what this is about, I encourage you to look into it. Um, basically, uh, just to sum it up real quick, we gather up all sorts of toys and children's clothes, and we have a Christmas market in our church basement this Saturday from 12 to 2. And uh, we just give these away for very, very affordable. And the purpose is to help uh, families who are struggling to make ends meet and who otherwise wouldn't have presents for their kids. And so this gives them opportunity to purchase things at a very affordable cost for the children. And uh, we're not making any money off of this. We're actually donating all of these proceeds to the Hampton Family Center. And um, so that's the basic idea. If you'd like to get involved, um, you, you should have a green sheet in your bulletin, and you just fill that out, um, and you can get involved. If you'd like to donate, I, I think that would be an awesome way to contribute. You can donate financially, or you can also just buy toys on your own. You can go to any toy store, or you can even shop online on Craigslist, or you can go to yard sales or whatever, and uh, just buy toys. We, we want you to buy new or gently used toys, and then just bring them in. You can drop them off uh, Wednesday night. We, the church is open Wednesday night, and it'll also be open this week on Friday night. You can drop them Friday night, or you can drop them off Saturday morning. But as much as you can, please drop them off before Saturday uh, so that we can organize them. We want to have like an organizing time on Friday night. So that's the big idea behind Christmas. Um, and if you'd like to get involved, if you have a question, just fill out that green sheet. If you can't make any of those times, Wednesday night, Friday night, you can also fill out your green sheet and let, let us know. I want to drop some stuff off, but I can't make any of these times, and we'll sort something out. Okay, so that's Christmas. Um, I'm really excited about that. So over the past few months, we've been going through the sermon series in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, if you're not familiar, it documents the beginning of the church. And it's about this church that's on the move. God is moving this church, and the church is rapidly expanding. And it uh, started with this eclectic band of Jews, but it has grown now. We're, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 5 today. By Acts chapter 5, it has grown to 5,000 people. And it's multicultural now. It's not just Jews. It's multicultural. And uh, it's really exciting stuff. Um, in Acts chapter 5, at first glance, if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you just read it, it might seem a little bit out of place because you have story after story about amazing things, things happen. And then in Acts chapter 5, you have a story of people dying. Okay? And it kind of, it might catch you off guard if you're not familiar, but we'll be uh, reading that today. Um, I heard this podcast recently, um, from, this American Life this is a series uh, you, you can listen to on NPR. And um, in, in this podcast I was listening to, there was this man sharing a story. And he said he used to be part of this Mormon fundamentalist church. 
and they used to have all sorts of crazy rules and restrictions. He was saying that you, they, the leaders of the church didn't let anybody wear red. Okay, that was kind of weird. They didn't let people use sugar. They didn't let their kids use bicycles. They just had all sorts of crazy rules to put restrictions on people. And, and if you and I were to hear something like that, we'd say, oh, that is a cult. We would not want to be a part of that. But sometimes, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but I think just to be honest for a little bit, sometimes when I read the Bible, I read certain parts, and they make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And they make me feel like this sounds a little bit like a cult. And I don't want it, I, I don't want it for, I mean, it's not a cult, but it's just, it sounds kind of weird to me, some of these things that we read in the Bible. And so, if, you, if you've read the Bible a good amount, if you have a Bible, you know, you, you, and you've you're probably familiar with what I'm talking about. These are the passages where maybe, you know, like if you highlight your Bible, you might highlight a bunch of verses in the chapter before. You might highlight a bunch of verses in the chapter after. But you, there's no highlighting marks in this chapter because you just don't really know what to do with this chapter, right? You know, you don't really put these verses on bumper stickers very often. And so, and sometimes you might even think, I wish this passage wasn't here. Hey, you shouldn't think that, of course. But sometimes we're tempted to think that. And so today, today, I bring that up because we're reading a passage that might fall in that category. But I think, you know, if you want to be a Bible-believing church, if you want to go through the book of Acts, we have to talk about these passages. We've got to talk about what does God want to teach us through these passages. So that's what we'll be doing. Um, and you can follow along on the screen as we read. I'll actually start from Acts chapter 4, verse 32, just to provide some context. We covered this last week, so there'll be some review. But we'll cover this a little bit, and then we'll read chapter 5, 1 through 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we have this early church. It's growing rapidly. And uh, one of the characteristics of it uh, that we talked about last week is there is this radical generosity going on. 
We have people who are pretty well off. They donate land and they take their money and they give it to the church. And the church, they distribute this money to the poor. Yeah, that's great stuff. And back then, there were no tax deductions when you donate things like that. And so this was even more radical than, you know, than you might think. So it's really inspiring stuff. And then there's two people, Ananias and Sapphira. They seem to do that. They kind of do that, right? They sell some land, and then they take that money. Some of the money they keep for themselves, and some of the money they give to the church. And then God strikes them dead. Okay? And you might be thinking, what a momentum killer. This church was going so well, okay? It had 5,000 people. People were coming to Christ. People were being healed. Amazing. And then you have, you might be thinking, God, was, is this the best move here? Is this like, if you want to grow your church, would you have a business plan like this where you want, you know, you have things going and, and then you have people dying in the church? And, and you, don't you think there might be some sort of setback, right? Don't you realize that one day people are going to read the story in the Bible and they might think, I don't know if I want to be a part of a church where people die. That's a little bit, you know, dangerous, you know. And so when Christians today, we read passages like this. Sometimes, you know, as I mentioned, it's easy to gloss over these things. But I think it's important to understand them and understand um, why this is here. And uh, I want to say another reason why this is a little bit difficult for Christians to take in is this story is in the New Testament, Okay, the story is in the New Testament. Sometimes Christians have this distorted way of thinking. We think, okay, well, sometimes the Bible has weird stuff, but it's all in the Old Testament. And that's okay, because the Old Testament was very archaic. You know, weird things happened in the Old Testament. People, you know, they uh, had long beards back then, and they, were, they wore strange clothes, and they always carried staffs. And so people were just really weird back then. And so weird things happened, but that's how things were. So that's okay that things happen like that. But, and so we, sometimes we think, we take it another level, we say, God killed people in the Old Testament, but that was back then. God doesn't do that anymore. Now God just blesses us. And this story shows us that that's not true. That's not true. God is the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. And, and just because Jesus died and rose again, it doesn't mean that God is any different. It doesn't mean that God, you know, doesn't kill people anymore, doesn't only bless people or whatever. And, um, and so we have this account of two people in the, in the New Testament they did something wrong and God killed them. Okay, so we got to ask ourselves, what does this incident reveal about God's values for the church? In other words, we can think of it this way. What exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do that was wrong? And how can we learn from that? What did they do that was wrong? What did they do that warranted death? At first glance, um, you might think it was maybe they were just selfish or greedy or stingy, but I think it's deeper than that. I don't think it's just they were greedy or selfish or stingy because Peter doesn't say, Ananias, why did you only give this much? Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So Ananias' main sin wasn't that he was selfish, but that he lied to the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Peter goes on to say, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? In other words, he was saying, before you sold that land, that, that, that land was yours. And after you sold that land, that, that, that money was yours. You didn't, re- I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going, I'm going to, I don't want to put Peter, I mean, words in Peter's mouth here, but I get the idea that if Ananias and Sapphira didn't sell the land, if they didn't even donate a single penny to the church, they probably wouldn't have been killed because the stuff was there to begin with. 
And so their issue was that their, their sin was that they had lied to God. And how did they lie? So they, they sold the land for some amount. Okay, let's say they sold it for 100 bucks. Okay, and they chose to give, let's say, $50 to the church, and they chose to keep $50 for themselves. Okay, those are not real numbers, but let's just say they did that. Okay, why would they do something like that? Well, let's, let's try to get in the shoes a little bit. They just saw this guy Barnabas. We read about Barnabas who did something like that. Right, Barnabas was a guy who, who had land, he sold it, and he gave all of that money to the church. And so they're probably thinking, okay, this Barnabas guy did a really great thing. I kind of want to do that. And, and this Barnabas guy, people seem to really like him. They're thanking him for his donation. They're, they're complimenting for his sacrifice. You know, they admire him. They look up to him. And I want that. But I don't want the full sacrifice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the impression that I'm donating this amount, but I'm only going to donate this amount, right? That's what they did. So what's the difference? Let's think about this. What's the difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira? Well, if the Holy Spirit didn't show up, if the Holy Spirit didn't tell Peter what was going on from the outside, there would have been no difference. There would have been no difference. You know, they didn't have church buildings back then, but I would assume if they did have church buildings back then, they probably would have made a pew, and on the back of that pew, it would said like, donated by Barnabas. And they would have made another pew, and it says, donated by Ananias and Sapphira. And, and generations from now, you know, from, from then, nobody would have known any better. It's just everybody would just say, oh, these are some of the guys who helped build this church. But God knew that on the inside there was a world of a difference. So from the outside, there might not have been a difference, but on the inside, there was a world of a difference. Because on the inside, that's what matters. And here's the big idea. People judge one another based on their actions, but God judges us based on our hearts. People judge one another based on their actions, but God judges us based on our hearts. People, unless they're Jedi, they can't read other people's minds. They just can't, okay? They just see what people do, and they say, oh, that's a great that's a great person, okay? And you can name, fill in the list. This person is donating to refugees. Oh, this is such a great person. Oh, this person is volunteering at the Christmas market. Oh, that, what a great person. Or this person, you know, uh, is serving on the music team. Okay, oh, what a great person. We, we do that all the time. We look at people, we see what they do, and we judge them. We say, oh, that's a great, what a great act. But God isn't necessarily like that. God approves or disapproves of a person based not on what a person does necessarily, but on the reason for why that person is doing that. So yes, you might be donating money or volunteering time or whatever, but, to, but why are you doing that? To God, the reason why you're doing that is more important than the actual fact that you're doing that. The reason matters. So do you, scare, do you see how, how scary this is? You can have two people in the church, even in our church, the village church, okay? You can imagine two people in the church, and from the outside, they look exactly the same, okay? They both go to church on Sundays. Maybe they both go to community groups. Maybe they both, you know, read their Bibles regularly. They both give to the church. They both serve in the church. They both, um, maybe even beyond the church, maybe they, they both try to parent their kids well. They both work hard in their jobs, whatever, and one could be drawing closer to God every day, and one could be drifting away from God every day. But on the outside, they look, they look exactly the same. And one can be spiritually alive and thriving, one can be spiritually dead. 
Why is it? Because their hearts are different. Their motivations are different. Their insides are different. And so, by striking Ananias and Sapphira dead, God made a, made a statement, and that is that God is concerned about the purity of his church, about the inner hearts of people. Uh, just because Jesus died and rose again, it doesn't mean that God no longer cares about the purity of, of his church. He does care about purity. And when we're talking about purity, we're not talking about how, and we're not saying that God doesn't want bad people in the church to corrupt the good people in the church. We're not talking about that. God welcomes everybody into the church. I think what we're saying is God doesn't want fake people in the church. God doesn't want people who come in and they do all sorts of good things on the inside. They're, they're criticizing everybody and they're judging everybody and they, they hate everybody, but they're just doing good things for a show. God doesn't want those sorts of people in the church. And so by God, by striking Ananias and fire dead, God was saying, these type of people don't belong in the church. If you're going to just use the church to build a platform for yourself so that people can like you better, you got to get out of the church. That's what God was saying. So yes, God wants for people to do good things. But even more important than that, God wants for people to do good things for good reasons. And to be honest, churches today in America are filled with Ananias and Sapphira's. Everywhere in the church, people do good things for self-glorifying reasons. They're using God as a platform to build their own agendas. They use church resources, church service opportunities, church relationships. To, they manipulate all these things to get themselves to look better among other people. And the glory doesn't go to God anymore. It goes to themselves. And you're probably, you know, you're probably seeing cases like that in your own life. Maybe you know people like that. Or maybe you might have those tendencies yourself. I want to encourage you to ask, do you have those tendencies? You know, it, it's so subtle. It can be so blurry. And, but if, if many of us were honest with ourselves, we would probably say, we do that sometimes. You know? So why do you do the good things that you do? What is going on in your heart when you do those things? Are your actions the result of a genuine heart who loves God, longs to serve God? Or are your actions, your good deeds, are they just a means to get people to like you, to affirm you, to compliment you, to thank you? You know, you can think about all the things that you do. Why do you attend church? Is it because you want to experience God? You want to learn? You want to grow? Or is it because you, you want to look good in front of other people? You know, you, you know, maybe this week, if I don't go to church, I run into so-and-so on the street and They'll ask me why I didn't go to church, and then I'll have to come up with some reason, and I'll, they'll feel badly about me, and you know, I just feel so guilty. And so what, what is that person thinking? They're not going to church to experience God. They're just going to church because they want to look good in front of somebody, right? Or why do you serve? Why do you serve on the music team or the welcome team or however you serve? Is it because, you know, you love serving God? You, you recognize God has has done so so many things for you. You just want to give back? Or... You know, if I serve, I'll look good in front of other people. People will see me and they go, oh, this person is su- has such a servant heart. He's always serving and, you know, such a great person. You know, why are you serving? Why do you give? Why do you give to people who are in need? Is it because, you know, God has given to you generously and you want to share God's blessings with others? Or or do you, do you give to somebody and you want them to owe you something, 
right? You want, you want them to see you as some, oh, this person helped me out when I was in time. This is such a great person. I'm so, I'm so indebted to this person, right? Or maybe you want to give and then you tell someone else, you know, I gave to this person and this person it was such a wretch and I helped them out. And you just want to look good. You want to look like a good Samaritan. You want to look like someone who helps someone in need. And so, so, so when people see you, they go, oh, this is such a generous person. You see what I'm talking about? There's so many good things you can do in such a way that, that is, that your reasons are wrong. That you're, you have selfish, self-glorifying reasons for doing all these good things. And, uh, you know, I'm there in the boat with you, if that's you. You know, I want to say if you're experiencing this tension, this discomfort, when you think about these scenarios, when you try to answer these questions, am I doing this for God or am I doing this for myself? You know, you might be wondering, am, am I like Ananias and Sapphira? And I want to say that if you're experiencing that, okay, I want to say we want to channel that feeling that we have, this, am I doing this right, am I doing this wrong? We want to channel that into having a proper fear of God. Okay, and I say that because that's what the early church did. Okay, I'll, I'll read a few passages here. So in our chapter that we read, in chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then go down a few verses, and verses 10 and 11, just talking about Sapphira now, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So twice in this passage, it mentions great fear fell upon everybody. Okay? And, and what kind of fear is this? What does it mean that great fear fell on everybody? Does it mean that people all of a sudden they got scared, so they stopped giving? Okay, does it mean that uh, people, just, they, they got so scared they just stopped going to church? No, I don't think that's the case because we, we, because we actually find out that the church grows even more after this, okay? Um, this word fear in the Greek is phobos and we get the word phobia from it. And, and almost, it's really interesting when you look at this word in the, in, the, in the book of Acts in particular, this word is almost always associated with positive things, Okay, this word fear is almost always associated with positive things. Here's just two examples from Acts. In Acts 2.43, and in our English translations, we like to, you know, sometimes make things a little bit more suitable for us. So, so actually this word fear in English is usually translated awe, but it's actually the same word in Greek. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So there's this immense feeling of amazement and fear that people had, and because many signs and wonders were being done. Here's another verse in 1917. So uh, after a miracle happened, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So this wasn't the fear that drove people away from Jesus. It caused people to worship Jesus even more. Okay? And then, so what does this tell us? This tells us that fear isn't a bad thing necessarily. In the book of Acts, oftentimes, the fear of God is a good thing because it makes people take God seriously. It shows people God is real. He intervenes in reality, okay? He invades people's lives, and he causes things to happen. And, and you recognize this, this faith business is not just a joke. It's not just a bunch of people, you know, you know, talking about ideas, God is real. And when you recognize that, you fear God, okay? And it doesn't mean you don't want to talk to him anymore. It means I want to take this seriously. I want to understand what this is all about because this is bigger than I can comprehend. And in Acts chapter 5, 
uh, in the passage we, we read, just a few verses afterwards, in verse 14, it goes on to say, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, after Ananias and Sapphira, you would think, people might think, oh, this, this group of people, you go here and you slip up one time and you die. Peace out. I'm not going to be a part of this. Okay, this is kind of weird. But rather, you, that's, that's, you might think that, happened, but rather, it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So this fear didn't drive people away from the church, but it drove people to the church. Why? Why did this drive people to the church? Because people wanted to experience something that they couldn't understand. They want to experience something greater than themselves. You know, when, when we talk about morality, okay, you can think of, you can think of it this way. There's two types of morality. And there might be other types, but for our purposes, there are two types of morality. The first type is based on the fear of man. And the second type is based on the fear of God. Okay? And, and this is what I mean. The fear of man motivates people like Ananias and Sapphira to give to the church. Okay? They didn't have to give anything. Okay? But they said, you know what? I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to do a good thing. Why? Because I fear people. What do I mean by the fear of people? They're concerned about how other people view them. Okay? They see how other people view Barnabas, and they say, oh, Barnabas? People like Barnabas. And they see he has a lot of money, and he donates to church. And, and I have a field, so people might look at me, okay, and they say, oh, I have a field. So might mean I'm pretty, they might think I'm really wealthy, so they might think I'm stingy if I don't give to the church. And so you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to the church and get people to think that I'm good, that I'm generous. So they, they were doing good things in order to alter their own reputations. Do you see that? They were doing good things to alter their own reputations. So their fear of man caused them to do a good moral thing. Okay? On the other hand, you have morality that is based on the fear of God. This is totally different. The people who came in after Ananias and Sapphira died to the church, they weren't thinking, oh, this looks like a great community where I can do good things so that people will like me. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, God is on the move here. He is big. He is amazing. He's powerful. I want to be a part of something. I want to experience God. I want to know and comprehend this God. I want to be, I want to love and serve and work in this community that is directed by God himself. And so here's the thing. So the type of morality, so there's two moralities, right? The type of morality that is driven by the fear of man will never outlast the type of morality that is driven by the fear of God. The type of morality that is driven by the fear of God will always last forever. Because the, the fear of man, okay, it might drive people to do good things. You know, if you're driven by the fear of man, you might give to the poor. You might, you know, volunteer at Christmas events. You might even, you know, it might be a good dad. It might cause you to be a good dad. But all of it, it's nothing but a show, because you, the whole time, you're not actually doing, really, really doing good things. You're just, you're just changing your actions so that people will perceive you in a certain way. Okay? Your heart isn't any different at all. Your heart is still the same, but you're just changing your actions so that people will see you and they will affirm you. It's just a show. If you want true, lasting change, then you have to have your heart changed. Only when your heart changes, then will your actions change permanently. If you're just changing your actions as a show, 
It's just going to last for a while. It's going to fizzle out. But if your heart changes, then your actions are going to be an overflow of your heart. And so how do we get our hearts to change? We need a healthy dose of the fear of God. We need a healthy dose of the fear of God. When we recognize the glory, the beauty, the power, the supremacy, the relevance of God, our hearts will be changed. Because we recognize God is in this and I have nothing to fear. I don't need to fear everything else. I can fear God alone because he is more powerful. He's going to take care of me. He's in control. Um, This rings true for me because... To be honest, I can be pretty good at building my own kingdom. I can be pretty good at being kind of fake, okay? And uh, I don't know if you if you know me close enough, you might know this, but um, I've, I've been in church for a while, you know, so it's, it's and, when, and when you're in ministry, it's especially blurry because you can, you're always doing supposedly good things all the time, but it, you never see someone's heart, right? And so... Um, so also, I mean, so I'll just give like a quick recap of my life. Okay, so in seventh grade, um, I remember this time, I, w- I was, I don't know if I was a Christian back then, but I was listening to the sermon, and this pastor was saying, um, Galatians 1.10, which says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I'm trying to, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I remember then, I just had my mind click, and I realized my whole life, up to this point, I was only 12, but so I, I didn't have a very long life. But my whole life, up until this point, was dedicated to this one goal, to get people to like me. That was my only goal in life. And, and, it, and I never thought of it that way, but that was my goal. That's why I tried hard to get good grades in school. You know, that's why I tried really hard to make friends. That's why I tried to make the school basketball team. You know, that's why I talked to girls, right? That's why I did everything, and, and even in the church, okay, Back then, in my church growing up, all these kids, we would take turns playing the uh, offering song on piano every Sunday, and I would do the offering song on piano. You know, and I did that so that people would like me. To get, I would want people to affirm me. And I didn't realize, but I was like a little Ananias. I didn't realize how easy it was to do churchy things to get people to like me. And so back then, I decided, enough living for people, I'm going to live for God. And you know, later I decided to go into ministry as a career, but that idea is still hasn't left. It's still there. I mean, it's not there all the time, but it's still there. You might think that people in ministry they they don't they always live for God now. And they never live for people, but that's not true. You know, about a year ago, even I was uh, at this church in in this room, and um, sometimes I just come here by myself when you know, uh, and it's, it's kind of weird, but I, I do that and I just sit in this room and I play piano or I just read the Bible or whatever, but that's what I do, okay? And, um, and I remember about a year ago, I did just that, and I was reading Matthew uh, 23, 27, when Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are uncleanness. And I remember thinking, and just like, this thought just came into my mind, Jesus is talking to me. Jesus is talking to me. I often feel like a whitewashed tomb. What does that mean? It means I look beautiful on the outside, not necessarily like I'm physically handsome, but I mean that people look at me and they, they admire me, they affirm me, they think I'm doing a good job, okay? But I'm rotting on the inside, spiritually. I don't have everything together. I don't feel close to God. 
I don't read my Bible as much as often as I do. But on the outside, things look perfectly dandy. And I remember thinking that that is so true of me. I can do all these church things, you know. I can worship and serve and give and even preach a sermon, right? But why am I doing those things? Why am I doing those things? Is it because I have a vibrant relationship with God? God's love has transformed me, and so I want to live for him. Or am I still carrying on my seventh grade self? I'm, I'm doing all these things to get people to like me, to get people to tell me good job. I don't know if that's you. Maybe you relate to that. Maybe you do good. And it doesn't have to be in a church context. Maybe you do good things to get people to like you. And you forget God judges not by your actions, but by your heart. And so you might be asking, if I'm there, how can I, how can I change my heart? If that's true. I've, for so long, I've been changing my actions, my external appearance. How can I change my heart? And here's the thing, we can't. Only God can change the hearts. We can't do anything to change our hearts. It's easy, relatively, to change our actions, but it's impossible for us to change our hearts. That's a job that only God can do. So how does God change our hearts? How does God instill this proper fear of God in order to change our hearts? It's the gospel story. The gospel story, the more we understand and soak in the gospel story, the more we fear God, the more our hearts will be changed. How is that possible? So we got, here's the gospel story. So we have God, he created human beings to be good, and then human beings, we messed up, we sinned, we fell into sin, we rejected God, and, and God knew that inside, of the, inside and out we were sinners, rotten through and through, but he loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. Jesus chose to be falsely accused, to be abandoned by his friends, to be beaten to death, for us, and then, and then when that happens, when we, when we think about that, when we dwell on that, when we experience that, our hearts get changed because we recognize God loves us this much. How much more? I, I, I need, God loves me so much. You know, that's all we can say. And, and it's interesting that when Ananias and Sapphira died, fear came upon the whole church. Because I think when we recognize Jesus died, Jesus died for us, we should have that same fear on us too. When God killed Ananias and Sapphira, he showed he wasn't just going to be a spectator. It wasn't just going to be, okay, Jesus, Jesus told everybody, okay, now start this church, peace out, I'm going to see you in a few thousand years. It wasn't like that at all. God was still very in tune with what was going on in this church he wasn't just going to watch this church take on these unhealthy habits. He's going to take charge and do something about it. He wasn't going to tolerate impurity. And when he did that, fear came upon every soul because he realized God is in this. God is in this church. He is for this church. He is moving this church. This isn't something to be taken lightly. I got to be a part of this. And in the same way, when God killed Jesus, his son, he showed he wasn't going to be a spectator to this world just spiraling into sin. Okay, since the dawn of history, since the fall, humans have been sinning and sinning and sinning, and God, he, he wasn't just going to sit back and just watch this world blow up and sin. He actually chose to take charge, to come into this world, and to send his son to die for this world. Jesus, that's what Christmas is all about, right? That Jesus came as a baby to live and die and rise again. 
And he, when he did that, he, he, he said he wasn't just going to tolerate sin. He was going to do something about it. He was going to handle it and get rid of it. And when we see that, we got to have fear because we recognize God, my, the little things that I do every single day, my, my impure motives, you know, my dirty thoughts, whatever, God cared so much to get rid of those things inside of me that he killed Jesus so that those things would be gone. Okay? He takes these things seriously. And when we see God doing that, fear should come upon us. Fear should come upon our soul. And the more we soak in that story of Jesus, the more we change. So let's pray right now um, as the worship team comes forward. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, um, that Jesus came to live this life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved. And then he rose again in victory to show us that there is hope and there is a chance to live freely where we are not tainted by sin. And God, I want to confess, and we want to confess for those of us who relate, that we have not had good reasons for many of the good things that we do. And the reality is, many of us, we have abused you in order to accomplish our own purposes. We've turned our church into a talent show sometimes where we humble brag to one another talk about all the great things that we do and we subtly show off to get people to like us, to affirm us, to congratulate us, to thank us, whatever. God, I want... We want to ask for you to get rid of all of those things. I pray that you would restore in us a pure heart, a clean heart that is set on you alone. Refined so much that we don't care about how people view us, how people think of us. And we can just rest in the fact that you see us already and you love us. And that's all we need. We have all these little insecurities that cause us to frantically search for people's approval from boyfriends or husbands or girlfriends or wives or kids or parents or teachers or pastors or whoever. And we don't need to do that because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you view us and you call us righteous. You call us son or daughter. And you love us. And that's all that matters. And because we fear you, we have nothing else to fear. God, I pray that you would root us in the story of Jesus every single day. When we go through moments, when we forget, and we're, we're always thinking about how will people think of us, how will people react to us, or how will, what if we do this and we mess up? God, I pray that you get rid of those thoughts. And you replace those thoughts with... I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. You're free. God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for being for us. Thank you that even though this church in Acts experienced all sorts of opposition, that had people, Jewish leaders, who tried to shut them down, but it also had sinners inside of the church who rose up and created internal messiness, 
the church still went forward. You still pushed it forward. And, and we can find hope in that because we know that when we mess up, when things happen in our own lives that train wreck us, we can still go forward because you are still for us. You won't give up on us just because we mess up. You're still there for us. Your church is on the move even today in 2015 here in Baltimore. So thank you for this opportunity that you give us to be a part of it. I pray that we would more and more be transformed into the likeness of your son, that we would love you more and more. I pray for purity in our church, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen.